Amen. Good morning, church family. It's good to be with you this morning. Good to see you guys. And I know for our family, it's been a long week. So it's good to come back into the church house and be with my brothers and sisters and and to hear your beautiful voices singing because it covers up my not so beautiful voice. So thank you for doing that. (laughs) No, it's good to be with you. If you're new, welcome. Um, You're joining us on week two of our new summer series through the book of Micah, Faithful God, Unfaithful People. And if you are new, um, or if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's sermon, I want to encourage you when you have some time, whether it's this afternoon or this week, to go back and do that. Because last week when we started in chapter 1, we covered a whole lot of context to this book. Uh, Whenever we start a new series, I always like to give you the big picture so that you know where we're heading and you can understand what we're talking about a little more in depth. So if you haven't heard that one, go back and listen to it. Today we're going to continue to hear how God is faithful. And his people, well, uh, they're not so faithful. And my hope is is as we go through this message, as we study the word together, that you wouldn't say, oh my goodness, listen to how unfaithful those people were. But rather you would say, oh my goodness, how faithful am I? That you would ask yourself, Lord, how do I need to change? How do I need to grow? And being faithful Anytime we come to the Word of God, it's going to cut, it's going to reveal. It is living and active. It's going to do a work on your life. So what I'm asking you to do is to prepare your hearts to allow the Word to work on you. And why don't we just do this? Why don't we start with a word of prayer asking our hearts to be ready? Would you please bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, we just come before you this morning as we get ready to study your Word and and we, we know that you're going to do a work, that your word will speak to us. We pray, though, that we would be humble and ready to hear it. Lord, we confess that, you know, just as we sang about, just as DJ shared, uh, there are lots of things that happened over this week. There are many things that we could have had our eyes and hearts directed towards that maybe were not you. And so we come before you this morning saying we, we want to turn our eyes and our attention and our focus on you now. Would you please humble us under your mighty hand? Would you please help us to be uh, engaging with your word and asking, what do you have for me today, Lord? How do you want me to change and grow for your glory, for the good of others? Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for giving us your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, last week when we were in chapter one, uh, what we heard was that God is coming to judge. Specifically, he was coming to judge the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah for their religious apostasy and idolatry. Instead of worshiping the one true king, uh, Yahweh, they had went astray. They had looked at the other nations around them, and they said, you know what, we're going to follow in their footsteps. We're going to turn aside to pagan deities, and that's exactly what they did. And what they had done is they had broken the covenant that God had made with them through the prophet Moses. God had given them the law. He'd called them to live righteously according to the law, but they didn't fulfill their end of the deal. And as a result of that, God is now judging his people by sending the nation of Assyria to conquer them and to take them away to a foreign land, into exile. Now that began for the northern kingdom of Israel in 732 BC, but the southern kingdom of Judah was actually not conquered by Assyria at all. I didn't really fill out those details last week, so we're going to fill them out this week. Because King Hezekiah uh, listened to the prophet Micah, the one whom we're studying from, he repented and he uh, changed the, the course of the nation of Judah, and God relented and did not bring the disaster of the Assyrians all the way into 
and through the capital of Jerusalem. Instead, uh, he preserved them for a little while longer. Ultimately, they still went astray, and the Babylonians did come in and conquer the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. So today we're going to pick up in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to the Old Testament, to Micah chapter 2. That's page 660 of the Bibles that were out on the table on your way in, if you have one of those. And what you're going to hear today, the prophet Micah is going to get specific about the things that are the, the sinful behaviors that need to be called out, and also he's going to speak to specific people about why God is coming to judge. And before we read this passage, what I think would be helpful for me to do is to remind you that the people that he's speaking to, right, the nation of Israel, they were a people who understood there is a God. They, they had grown up uh, being God's chosen nation, and, and even though they had walked away from him. They understood there was a God who ruled over all, but over the generations, they had progressively ignored his call on their life. They had progressively not taught and trained up the next generation. And as you can imagine, when you do that for generation after generation after generation, what happens is things get very spiritually dark in the land and in the people. And so sin and apostasy apostasy is reigning. It's just increasing in the land. They're Uh, increasingly giving over their lives to their own passions and desires. They are the ones calling the shots rather than submitting to God's rule and reign. And as you think about that, that's ultimately still the problem in our world today. This is not something that's far off in the nation of Israel in a foreign land. Humanity still struggles with the same pattern. It's still our propensity to ignore God and to say, you know what? I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to decide how I'm going to live. I don't think there will be any consequences for my choices or my behaviors. We still say that and live that way, but that is patently false. It's one of the greatest lies that the enemy has ever deceived the human race with. You see, human beings are created beings, and we're made to live and to worship our great king, Yahweh. And he's given us clear instructions on how to live, and it's to our detriment if we ignore those and we go our own way and choose how we want to live. We just look back over human history, and we see that time and again. When the people go astray, when they, when they don't listen to the word of the Lord, um, it inevitably ends poorly. And that, that's still going on today, both in our nation and worldwide. You see, we are a nation who has forgotten the one true God. We are a nation that's obsessed with worshiping at the altar of self. And so a lot of times... The questions that we're asking is, what do I want to do with my day? How do I want my life to go? Very self-centered questions with us on the throne, rather than saying, God, what do you want from me today? How do you want my life to be lived out? What do you want me to accomplish with this life you've given me? So the patterns that we wrestle with here in America are very similar to the patterns that the Israelites wrestled with so many years ago. So it'd be wise for us to listen and learn from the Israelites, to listen and learn from Micah as he uh, rebukes them today, as he, he tells them about the consequences of their choices. Let's not repeat the same path of folly. What we're going to do now is we're going to read chapter 2 in its entirety, and then we'll come back and kind of go through it verse by verse in a little bit. So look with me now at Micah chapter 2. Here's what it says. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, They perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them. 
and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Can you imagine having to be the guy that has to deliver that message to the nation and its rulers? I mean, wow, Micah's got to really take a hard message and bring it to the people. And it's no wonder that uh, the people didn't really like him, right? The leaders of the people were opposing him. God's prophet Micah is telling them, hey, look, God has a contention with you. And it's not going to go well. Judgment is coming. And so let's, let's process this, what we just read. Um, and, and really, here's my goal as we do this today. I want to balance the historical context of what we just read with present-day application. How, how are you and I supposed to listen and learn and change as a result of what Micah's preaching here? And so in the time that we have left, we're going to be discussing three truths that you must remember in God's world Three truths you must remember in God's world. And what we're doing here at the start of our time, I'm just going to make sure we understand this, is we are beginning with the presupposition that there is a God who rules and reigns over all. That's what the Israelites believed. That's what the Scriptures teach from Genesis to Revelation, that there is a God, this is His world, and we live in it. And so in reality of that, here's the first truth you must remember in God's world. God is a faithful and just judge. God is a faithful and just judge. You see, the actions that God takes in the pages of Scripture, they're informed by His character, by who He is. That's true here in Micah 2, just like any other passage of Scripture. And what we heard here in chapter 2 is that God is now speaking, woe against the oppressors of the nation of Israel. And He's speaking that way because He is a faithful and just judge. Now, if we're going to say that he's a faithful and just judge, we probably ought to define those terms. Here's what it means to be faithful. It means that God will always do 
what he's said and fulfill what he has promised. For God to be faithful, it means he will always do what he has said and fulfill what he has promised. God's justice means that God always does what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. The fact that God is just means that he always does what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So what that means, that God being a faithful and just God means he's always going to do what's right and he's always going to do what he's promised to do. He's going to fulfill his word. And that includes when he promises to judge sin. And we heard about this last week that the Israelites have been given clear instruction in the Mosaic Covenant. God had outlined to them the expectations of them in the law and in the Ten Commandments. They knew what would happen if they chose to break the covenant. God had said, hey, look, if you don't obey, if you turn aside to worship false gods, if you build idols, if you live sinfully, you will be defeated by your enemies. I will send you away into a foreign land, into exile. God made it very clear that he opposes the proud. I just want to share with you as we go back into the Old Testament, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 28. We're going to hear for ourselves some of the curses, some of the stipulations of this covenant that the Israelites were aware of. Here's what Deuteronomy 28 says, and it'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. It says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Did you hear the all-encompassing nature of this? This is, this is hard stuff. He says, The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. A little bit later in verse 25, it says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and be uh, fleeing seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And then just a little bit later in verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you've set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. That's, that's a heavy uh, set of word there, right? I mean, that's, that's hard to hear, but that's the exact thing that God had made clear to the Israelites what would happen if you fail to live by the covenant, if you don't keep up your end of this deal, this is what will come. They knew that, and yet they chose time and time again to go astray and to pursue sin. And now God's faithfulness and his justice are being brought to bear on them, just like he said he would. Now, one of the perennial struggles that, that we as humans have, whether it's you know, the Israelites back in the Old Testament or whether it's us today, we ignore God. We don't take him at his word. Uh, we, we don't live the way that he's called us to. Instead, we say, you know what? I think I know how I'll live, and I will be the one who decides that. That is the height of folly, because you are living in God's world as one of God's creations. 
He's the one who gets to call the shots, and it's wise to learn from him on how he has designed things and what your purpose and place is in this world. And maybe it would be helpful if we use an analogy here. So let me try to do this to, to paint it this way. Let's say that I invite you to play a game with me, but I tell you none of the rules for that game. Now, how do you think that's going to go for you? It's going to be frustrating, won't it? You're not any idea what you're supposed to be doing. You're going to be very aimless as you try to navigate through the game. And what likely is going to happen is this is going to end and I'm going to crush you. You're going to get so beaten so badly, right? So if, if you don't know the rules of the game, what do you need to be doing? You need to be grabbing the rule book, right, and, and pouring through it as we're playing so that you can learn, how do I do this? What's my strategy? How do I succeed at this game? No, this is not the perfect analogy by any means. But the same is true of functioning in God's world. He's given clear instructions on who he is and how we're to live and how he's designed the world to function. But if you don't pick it up and learn from it, if you're not going to study the revealed word of God, how do you think life is going to go? Frustratingly, right? Aimlessly, the way that you're making decisions, how you're going through life. And ultimately, you will stand before God one day without hope as he judges you Again, not a perfect analogy, but hopefully a helpful one as we consider what we're learning. It's dangerous to ignore God. It's also dangerous to make God be like you, which I think is probably the more common thing that we do in American Christianity these days. We see in our world, in this creation, uh, God has designed it, but he's designed it to bless me, and he's done it to make me the best possible version of myself. That's a self-help God whose only ambition is to help you succeed in what I want to accomplish with my life. And that's pandered by false prophets and teachers all over our country. God becomes reduced to a magic genie who exists to help you have your best life now. And that is not the God of the Scriptures. Rather, our God is faithful and just. He will bless those who obey Him and curse those who disobey Him. It means you need to understand, what, well, what does it mean to obey God? How do I do that? How do I choose wisely? You see, the Israelites of Micah's day, they had forgotten that God is a faithful and just judge, and uh, their actions then became like, well, I want this land, so I'm just going to steal it. I want my neighbor's house. I'm going to take that too. Right? They had forgotten who God was, and that allowed them to justify all sorts of sinful actions. And then when Micah started speaking out against them, they said, hey, 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 stop prophesying like that. God's not going to defeat us. He's not going to come against us in judgment. We're okay with how we live. That was very foolish of them. They had willingly forgotten God and ignored God. And that's going to be to their ultimate detriment, as evidenced by the sentence of exile that they received. Now we're going to come back and go into that in just a minute. But before we go there, What I'd like to do is just point out that the sins of Israel are not that far removed from our life today and our country today. Last week I mentioned that I was amazed as I was, you know, reading and studying to prepare uh, the sermon for Micah this, you know, and I was just amazed at how applicable this book is for this season of life in our church, but specifically in our country's history. As I read chapter 2, getting ready for this week, you see those in power coveting. Right? They want their neighbor's possessions, so they reach out and they take them. They devise wickedness. They're, how am I going to get what I want? That's what they're living for. And as I read that, as I was studying that this week, it started to ring some other 
uh, bells of things I'd read recently. And so I want to share something with you um, from more recent history. This is from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the year is 1921. So it's just 99 years ago. This is going to be a couple of extended quotes here, so bear with me, and they'll be on the screen behind me. Let's set the scene. Detroit Avenue, along the edge of Standpipe Hill, contained a number of expensive houses belonging to doctors, lawyers, and business owners. The buildings on Greenwood Avenue housed the offices of almost all of Tulsa's black lawyers, realtors, doctors, and other professionals. Deep Greenwood, as the area at the intersection of Greenwood and Archer Avenues was known, served as a model African-American community to towns worldwide. Greenwood was a very religiously active community. At the time of the racial violence, there were more than two dozen black American churches and many Christian youth organizations and religious societies. Now that is going to become the backdrop to one of the greatest state-supported massacres in U.S. history. So we're going to move to a different source now. Let me just share this with you. That wealth infuriated white residents and business owners, and their anger exploded on May 31, 1921. According to the Tulsa Historic Society and Museum, police arrested a black man named Dick Rowland on suspicion that he assaulted Sarah Page, a white woman, in an elevator the previous day. Local newspapers circulated unsubstantiated reports about Rowland allegedly raping Page, and an armed white group confronted a similarly armed black group of World War I veterans outside the courthouse where the sheriff held Roland. The two sides exchanged shots until the outnumbered black militia, initially trying to prevent a lynching, had to retreat. White Tolsons then attacked the Greenwood neighborhood for two days. Smithsonian Magazine says the mobs destroyed 35 blocks and killed almost 300 black people. Police and National Guard intervened, primarily to put out building fires and arrest black people some of whom were taken out of vigilante custody. Franklin, who's this historian John W. Franklin of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture, says that white rioters, aided by city government and the National Guard, were deputized and handed weapons to carry out the massacre. But while anger towards Roland may have lit the fuse, Franklin says the riots systematically targeted black wealth. Now, we have a photo, too, I think, of uh, the Greenwood neighborhood being on fire. So there's a, you can see it's pretty well destroyed at that point. What comes out of that is the, the incidents categorized as a race riot, and the designation of, of a race riot allowed insurance companies to refuse reimbursement for the properties and the damage that had been done. Now, when I read that on Tuesday evening, that was shocking to me, and I hope that it's shocking to you as you read it uh, and hear about it today. That's part of our country's history within the last 100 years. It's not far off in the Middle East millennia ago, and yet I'd never even heard of it. It's called the Tulsa Race Massacre, if you want to do some more reading about it. And apparently it wasn't even included in formal history until about 1997, when the state finally ordered some research to be done into it and figure out what had happened. That's an incredibly sad narrative of people who are in power using their position to seize what is their neighbors, to take things from them, or just to flat out destroy them. They are literally denying their neighbor uh, their inheritance by burning it to the ground. And again, that's not from millennia ago in the Middle East. That's from my great-grandparents' generation. There are people walking the earth right now who have been directly impacted by that situation. And that's not the only one. There are many others like it. So we need to be aware of that. 
And I just I share that with us this morning to help us understand that the patterns we're reading about, the wickedness that we see in Micah chapter 2, they're not from a bygone era. They're still present in humanity today. These are not simply issues of the distant past. They affect people who are alive now. There is still sinful oppression happening that we must be aware of and seek to eliminate. And ultimately, as, as you and I form thoughts and convictions about all that, we need to do so in light of who God is and what He wants from us. Right? We, we must not be blind to God's character or what His Word teaches us. And as people made in His image, we ought to do what God says. He's a faithful and just judge. We can rest assured that He doesn't turn a blind eye to injustice. He will bring righteousness about. He will bring judgment on those people, whether they're His people or someone else. And so for us as His people, our goal ought to be to handle matters in the same way, in a way that is in alignment with God's faithfulness and justice. And we're going to come back to what that looks like here in the next point. So here's the second truth that I think comes through loud and clear in Micah chapter 2. It's you will be held accountable for choosing sin. You will be held accountable for choosing sin. And what I'd like to do now is is go back through Micah chapter 2 verse by verse and look at what it's teaching us. Now verses 1 through 5 are written as an oracle of woe. And so what we're going to see here at the start in verses 1 and 2 is Micah is identifying the sin that is being called out. So let's reread verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. What you're hearing is people who are always thinking about evil. Even when they're on their beds, they're just going on in their minds like, okay, what am I going to do today for myself? How am I going to perpetuate evil against others? And, And what he says is at first light, in full view of anyone who might want to see, then they perform it. That is very telling. Not that I want to help you become criminals, but typically if you're going to do criminal activity, you're going to do that at nighttime, right? Because you don't want people to see you and you don't want to get caught. So there's a hint. If you want to grow as a criminal, that's how you do it. But that's not what the application is here, okay? These guys, these gals, didn't even care about getting caught. Listen to what it says. Because it is in the power of their hand. They are certain that there won't be any consequences. Likely what happened is there was a corrupt legal system backing their wicked ways. The judges of the land were willing to overlook what was going on as those in power oppressed those who were weaker. And so they wanted their neighbor's house, they wanted their neighbor's land. Great, I'm just going to take it. I'm going to kick them out. That's a really egregious sin, especially in the nation of Israel. In the nation of Israel, God had given the land to the people. He'd set up special rules to make sure that the land couldn't be taken away from any family so that no family would be destitute and in in danger of enslavement. And he'd set up a system uh, to keep them out of poverty. But here we hear that uh, the Israelites were ignoring that. Those in power were oppressing those who were weaker, and they were doing exactly what God had told them not to do. They were willfully sinning against God and others. So listen to how God responds to that in verses 3 and 4. Therefore, because this is happening, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I'm devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. 
and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Notice that the Lord is the one who's devising disaster now. Earlier it was the wicked people devising evil, but now God is devising disaster against them. They can't escape the Lord's judgment. And we would be wise to learn from that and realize our sin and our choices to live in sin won't escape the Lord's judgment either. God is opposing the proud and he's bringing them low. And in this specific case, he's using the Assyrian army to do it. He's going to bring them into the land and he's going to rip out the northern kingdom and take them into exile. And as you hear this, what that uh, verse 4 is saying, the whole, we are utterly ruined, he changes the portion of my people. That's the Assyrians mocking the Israelites as they come in and do to them what they had been doing to one another, right? Now they're the oppressors, they're the ones in power, and they're like, ha, here's a taste of your own medicine, and they're mocking them as they do it. The tables have turned. Look at verse 5 as we see the really significant conclusion of this. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. That's a significant statement, especially for the Israelites. It means that those who were perpetuating these injustices against one another were going to be excluded from the covenant community of God. They were now no longer part of God's people, and they had no hope for inheritance in his kingdom eternally. I mean, this is damnation in the Old Testament. The consequences for sin are serious. We cannot minimize them. We can't downplay them. And verses 6 through 11 go on to reveal that God has a dispute against his people's sin. He says in verses 8 and 9, you've risen up as my enemy. You're stealing the clothes off your neighbor's back. You're driving the women out of their homes so that you can take them for yourself. And you're denying the next generation their inheritance. How wicked. How wicked selfish. That's what sin is. And God says in verse 10, your sin has rendered this place unclean. You have defiled it. It's no longer fit to be dwelt in, and now it's going to have to be removed from his presence, which is why the exile happens. They're going to be sent away from God's presence to bless to the land of the Assyrians. So as you think about this, as you consider these verses that we're, we're talking through, don't tame the God of the Scriptures. Don't minimize Him. Don't make Him to be like you. God does not tolerate sin. His justice will not allow Him to do that. Sinners must be held accountable for their choices. Right about now would probably be a good time to admonish you and encourage you as your pastor to flee from sin, right? And that seems like a wise idea. If you're hearing about what happens when we choose to walk down an unrepentant path of sin, Flee from it. Turn and go a different way. And specifically, flee from covetousness. That's the sin that's at the root of what's going on here. People are desiring what their neighbor has, so they take it. And it leads them down a very dark and dangerous path. Good thing we don't struggle with covetousness, right? Oh, wait. (laughs) That's like one word adjective that could be used to describe our nation. I mean, we live in an economy that's always encouraging us to have the next latest and greatest thing, like, oh, my neighbor's truck is awesome. I want a 2020 Ford F-150 on 20-inch rims. Thank you. No, 
That's not, it's not about us. It's not about getting the next greatest thing. It doesn't matter. I want it. I want it. I'm going to go into debt to get it. I'll just put it on credit. No, that's not what we're called to do. Covetousness or even pride would be accurate descriptors of our nation. And neither of those are a compliment. Both are inherently sinful and they invite the Lord's judgment. So we need eyes to see and ears to hear what the Lord is teaching about these character issues. And what I want to help us realize as we're studying this this morning is that long before these character qualities come out in our behaviors or in our words, they start in our heart. They start as a desire of the heart. Let me show you why I believe that from the pages of Scripture. Matthew 15, here's what Jesus teaches. Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So there's the Lord's words on that particular topic, the desire to start in your heart. Let's listen to the Apostle James. Here's what James says. But each person, right, that includes you, that includes me, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So it starts with our desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's how our sin manifests. Sin proceeds from within. Sin proceeds from within. And if you're going to have any success in defeating sin in your life, then you have to have God the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to go to war against it. That empowering is only available to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we consider Micah chapter 2 and its implications for our lives today, we're pointed back to the necessity of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. See, apart from the Son of God coming down and dying in your place, you would have no hope of defeating and turning away from sin. The book of Romans describes your condition outside of faith in Christ as under slavery to a cruel master. You're enslaved to sin. But in Christ, you can be set free from that cruel reign, that cruel mastery. You can be delivered over to a new master, a righteous master, God. He declares you righteous through the blood of Christ. He empowers you with his Holy Spirit so that you can resist temptation and obey him. And he gives you a new heart so that you can desire to live the way that God calls you to live. Now, I think we would say, well, that doesn't mean that the battle's over. I think you'd probably testify to that from your own life experience. Yes, being made new uh, frees you from the enslavement and the bondage of sin. You don't have to do it anymore. But now you're free to choose how you live. You're free to choose righteousness, which is what I would encourage you to do. But there's still that desire waging war within us. Well, maybe I'll choose sin this time. And that's what we must wage war against. We must choose righteousness. And in this case, what we're learning about from Micah chapter 2 is choose not to pursue covetousness. Flee from covetousness. Well, how do we do that? Maybe we ought to look at what the Israelites did 
and do the opposite of that. That'd be a good start. So let's think about that. What would that look like? Well, in verses 1 and 2, we hear about how they are, you know, only concerned about what they want. They're using their power, their position to take from others. So how about this instead? Use your position to serve rather than be served. Unlike the Israelites, Christians are called, unlike how they were functioning, we're called to radical generosity, to be looking for ways to bless others and serve others and I would be remiss if talking about this if I didn't say thank you to all of you for being radically generous in your giving. Throughout this pandemic, the church has been more than provided for. Thank you for that. Praise God for that. But I I don't want us to just take care of the church and those within it. Let's be thinking about how can we serve others in our community. I would love to hear that our small groups are not only caring for one another within small group, but also thinking, how can we partner with those in the community that have needs? Get out there and minister to those needs. Or uh, families in your neighborhoods are saying, man, I see a need. Let's figure out how we can meet it. That would be amazing. How about this from verse 3? We hear that the Israelites were very proud. Instead of cultivating pride, why don't we cultivate humility? Cultivate humility, not pride. We know that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That our Savior's example was one of a life of humility. And so if we're going to be like Him, if we want to be like Jesus, then we must think of ourselves less and think of others more. Not think less of yourselves, but think of yourself less. You shouldn't be on your mind all the time. How about, what can I do to bless others? How can I honor the Lord today? Those are the thoughts that ought to be on our heart and mind. It's not what pleases me. It's what pleases God. Or how about this? In verse 6, we saw that they weren't really interested in hearing uh, from the word of the Lord from the prophet Micah. Maybe we ought to learn from that. Instead, we want to listen to God's word, not our own. Listen to God's word, not your own. I'm convinced that one of the most dangerous habits for any Christian is to be undisciplined in their study of the word. The moment you start Uh, abandoning God's revelation to you, the moment you walk away from God's source of truth is the moment where you begin to make some very foolish decisions. The less you're able to understand God's plan and this world that he's put you in, and the more likely you are to choose whatever's right in your own eyes. And as we see, uh, that does not go well. It's a lot easier to justify our sin for selfish reasons when we're not in the word of God, being convicted by it, equipped by it, and taught by it. So I want to encourage you to drink deeply of God's Word on a regular basis. Read it, study it, meditate on it, maybe even journal about it, what you're learning, how God's convicting you, how you need to change as a result of it. And how about this? Pray over it. God, help me to see how I need to change. How do I need to grow? Lord, I I recognize that this is an area where I'm weak, and I want to confess that and own it before you. Let the Word do the work in your life that it was meant to do. And then how about this? We see this in verses 8 and 9. They didn't really uh, recognize their sin for what it was. They had justified it. So how about we evaluate whether your actions are sinful? Evaluate whether your actions are sinful. We're talking about being willing to hold yourself accountable and, and being willing to invite others into your life who can hold you accountable If we get out of the habit, or if you've never been in the habit of regularly evaluating your actions, your desires, guess what happens? It's really easy to justify sin like that. It's really easy to turn a blind eye to things in your life that God is not pleased with. 
And so I would highly encourage everyone here to have someone in your life, uh, call it an accountability partner, call it whatever you want, an intentional discipleship relationship in your life where someone has full license to speak into you. That's been uh, probably single-handedly the most uh, valuable thing in my walk over the last 20 years. Is having someone that we can dig into the Word together, that we can speak into each other's life together, that they can call me to give an account of my actions and my desires. Right now for me, that's Jack Flaherty. We meet every week. We're growing and trusting one another and sharing life with one another, holding nothing back from one another. Prior to that, it was a guy by the name of Josh Greiner for about six years. And prior to that, it was Joel Bertels and Johnny Kajir. These men have been instrumental in my life in helping me be faithful to God and His Word. Who is it for you? Who is speaking into your life at that level? Who do you keep nothing from? Now, those steps are going to be requiring intentionality from us. They're not just going to happen on their own. You have to be willing to see that it's valuable and commit to it. And so I want to encourage you to seek the Lord on it. Dig into his word and see whether you agree that these are things that would be valuable for you. I want to encourage you to invite others into your walk with the Lord. We talk often around here about how we're called to compelling community and purposeful discipleship, both of which imply that our walk with Jesus is a community project. Our growth in holiness is a community project. We need others to be in our lives, and we need to be in the lives of others to help them to grow. So link arm in arm with your small group members in the pursuit of holiness. Let them in. I would encourage you not to take a summer off from, from mutual ministry. There's never an appropriate time to take breaks from God's covenant community. We need to be a part of the people of God. I also want to encourage you to put these things into practice by serving at High Five Camp. Now, you might say, well, that's way outside my comfort zone. Can I let you in on a secret? Me too, okay? Spending time around a lot of kids, that's a little uncomfortable. But do you think Jesus meant for us to be comfortable when he said, hey, I want you to follow me, pick up your cross, and die daily? That doesn't sound like a comfortable call, does it? If we're going to be about making disciples, if we're going to be about training up the next generation to know the, the commands of Christ, then we've got to be willing to be uncomfortable as we serve him and serve others. And so on your seat when you came in, or the seat next to you, there should have been one of these little squares. This is an opportunity to say, hey, I'm interested in serving at High Five Camp. So I would encourage you to take some time either right now or immediately following the service to fill this out. And then drop it off in the... Uh, connect card drop bin on your way out today. And Emily will follow up with you about that. Wouldn't it be amazing if God chooses to use you this year at High Five to share the gospel of Jesus with a young, young boy or young girl? That would be amazing. So I would encourage you to consider serving. Well, our last truth that we're going to look at today that you must remember in God's world is God is a faithful and just redeemer. God is a faithful and just redeemer. He's not just a faithful and just judge. He's also, also a faithful and just redeemer. In verse 12, uh, God speaks about this redemption that he has planned for his people. Here's what he says. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So the, the nation goes off to Assyria in exile, the northern kingdom, and then later the southern kingdom goes off into exile in Babylonia, or Babylon, whichever is the appropriate way of saying that, whatever, you get it, get the point. 
and they're, they're, they're oppressed there. The nation shrinks in size, but God says, hey, I will redeem you. I will bring a remnant out. I will gather you together. I will uh, bring you into this noisy multitude of men. Micah elaborates on that in verse 13. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. It's God who's the faithful and just redeemer. He is the one who goes into uh, the, and rescues the people and brings them out of their exile. He's the one who is uh, going to lead them out of it. He is faithful even when they are not. Now, that could be referring to uh, 701 B.C. when Sennacherib brought his Assyrian army against Jerusalem and God sends his angel to kill 185,000 of them in one night. Or it could be referring to the inevitable uh, rescue out of Babylon later in history. It may be referring to the coming of the Messiah or his second coming. That's the beauty of the richness of prophecy. It's hard to say for sure what exactly this is pointing to. But one thing is for certain. God is faithful and just to redeem. He follows through on his word and he always does what is right. And we can rejoice in our God and his character we can, re- we can rest in him rather than clamoring for more possessions. I just got to have this or to look to this world to satisfy me. No, God alone satisfies. He alone justifies and declares you righteous. He alone provides the eternal life for which we so desperately long for. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, we just come before you this morning. And we cry out to you. We're so thankful for your character that you are faithful and just, both to judge and to redeem. And as we evaluate ourselves in light of your word, as we look around us in our broken and hurting world, we recognize that sin has serious consequences. And and I hope and pray, Lord, that today we'd be willing to evaluate our own lives. It's not about looking at our neighbor, the person sitting next to us, the people that came with us, and saying, Ooh, you're a sinner. No, Lord, this is an opportunity for us to say, God, help me to see sin in my life. Help me to identify where I need to grow and where I need to change so that I might walk with you and be faithful to you as an ambassador of Christ on this earth. And Lord, we want to declare your faithfulness and justice to judge and to redeem. We want to help people hear the good news that sin does have horrible consequences. We want to warn people about that. But then we also want to give them the hope that Jesus has come and he has died, and he's made a way through the resurrection for sinners to be redeemed. And so would you help us to be faithful to that message? Would you help us to be faithful to declare it far and wide, to not only care about what's going on in our lives and in our church, but to care about what's happening in our community and in our nation and in our world and be looking for ways to serve others and to give generously and to be your hands and feet on this earth. Do a mighty work in us, Lord, for your glory. We pray this.